Welcome everybody, this is the King and Shackton Everything Ethical Podcast. I'm joined today by Wayne Bishop and Craig Hart. Wayne, how are you doing? You alright? I'm in a brilliant mood, Harry. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good, thank you. Looking forward to the weekend. Craig, how are you? Yep, ready to uh, rock and roll on to Saturday. Indeed. So for those of you that don't know, King and Shackton this year will be celebrating their 20th anniversary. So I wanted to get the team together just to have a chat through what the reasons why... Wayne started it back in 2002. So back in 2002, Wayne, it was bespoke portfolios. What were the client drivers behind that then? I think very much at the time it was having a very accurate exclusion criteria, i.e. not investing in certain things. So as Friends Provident was taken private and lost some of its Quaker values, we were picking up people who didn't want, for example, government bonds, but also at the same time didn't want any kind of armaments and not many funds were catering to those needs at the time. So we were able to come in with a product where we could meet almost to a high degree of precision every sort of ethical requirement that clients had. And that continues to be the driver behind Bespoke today. And it was a few years later, wasn't it, Craig, when the model portfolios were set up? And then they've been going for 12 years now, haven't they? Yeah, so 2010, uh, Wayne and the team back then started the model portfolios on the back of uh, demand from a few uh, IFA com- uh, clients that are still with us now, still invest their money now. So like on the bespoke side, we've had clients that have been with us for 20 years. We've also got clients on the model portfolios that have been with us for 12 years as well. Um, there's been a lot of growth in that business, particularly when uh, there were the RDR uh, review came out. Um, but I think the pure availability of more ethical, sustainable impact funds is driving a lot of clients and advisors down that route as well. Uh, onwards and upwards is what I would say. So the bespoke portfolio, the client sits there and fills out the values-based questionnaire. What, what's the screen in place for the model portfolios? So we have a, we have our uh, traditional screen, so no alcohol, tobacco, nuclear en- energy generation. Um, we don't have animal testing for cosmetics either. So there are the usual exclusions on there, and then we look for sustainable funds, responsible funds, and impact funds as well. Uh, All the details can be found on our website. Craig, could you remember when we went fossil fuel free in our models? Uh, I actually can't, no. It was that long ago, was it? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Moved ahead of the market. Tell me more. I think it must have been about 2016. I was trying to recall a date the other day just off the top of my head when we decided that fossil fuels would be excluded. And that kicked out a few funds at the time. Um, But it's amazing because back then it felt like a risky move and yet today it's pretty much the norm. What what was the reason for doing it back then? Was it clients or was that a sort of company decision? I think there were there were two things. I think one, yes, clients were definitely asking for it. We were seeing increasingly on the bespoke side, people say, actually, I no longer want any kind of fossil fuel company. And in p- the time, there were a few companies that were both in renewable and fossil fuels. I'll pick out, say, SSE, for an example, um, where you have both. But they were saying, no, we actually want to take that step forward. But then sort of around that time, we had the rise of what we called the Yield Co., those companies that were much more focused on generating electricity purely from renewable sources and that had perhaps a slightly lower risk profile than some of the others. So all of a sudden, the first ones of those came out. So we were able to have both the people that made the technology, the OEMs, the Vestas wind systems that design and build the wind turbines, but also those people who operated it, i.e. the wind turns, the wind turns the turbine, the turbine turns the meter. And it was a much more 
realistic or lower risk way of earning money from renewable energy. And of course, today, there are plenty of companies like that. They're continuing to multiply. Back then, they were rarer. And I think that was a driving factor that finally there were alternatives in generation that were 100% renewable. Fossil fuels are an interesting thing at the moment as well with um, the, the growth in the so-called transition fund. What, what's your thoughts on those transition funds and these oil and gas majors? Because I know some people try and justify it to say they are shifting, but realistically a lot of them aren't shifting fast enough. I think it's the speed of shift and the deliberate nature of it that really matters. So, I mean, the poster child would be Orsted, who changed from Dong, Danish oil and natural gas, almost overnight. And have very rapidly run down their fossil fuel divisions, really only limited now to those where there's legal contracts and difficulties. But there was a genuine, hard-felt commitment. Um, most others have been going more on marketing and have felt as if they've been dragged, kicking and screaming away from fossil fuels. There's one or two in the middle that really catch our eye at the moment because we are beginning to see some changes. And alongside the environmental side for oil and gas, obviously that catches a lot of headlines and matters to an awful lot of people. There's always been the social cost of oil that has been perhaps ignored. And that is the fact that, of course, um, oil and gas has often been financing some of the less less regarded nations in terms of human rights and um, tyrants and there's some very good books on this matter like Leif Finar's Blood Oil and we've often looked at the social cost of oil as well you know what are you financing when you buy oil and of course that's something that's became very very pertinent um, this year. Talking of electricity generation nuclear is screened from the model portfolios Craig what, what was the reason behind that because we see it from the bespoke side it's roughly 50-50 so are we ruling out 50% of the audience? Yeah, possibly, but our mantra has always been that we don't like grey areas. Um, so we'd rather be safe. So if there is a, a, an area uh, where it's 50-50, and we know that from our bespoke side, we'd rather uh, not be investing in a fund where potentially it could cause problems for the for the advisor where the underlying client doesn't actually have any, doesn't want any exposure to, say, nuclear energy. Uh, there are other industries as well that it does cause it. Um, you know, one of the other ones is is cars and the transition from internal combustion engines to EVs as well. Obviously, we know the story about Tesla how they're going extremely well, but companies like VW, Daimler, BMW, they're moving forward massively in there. And again, it's like what Wayne said: you need to make sure that the transition is far enough along and that they do actually believe in what they're doing and they do want to get to you know net zero rather than just saying, yes, we're going to get there and, in fact, they're dragging their heels. VW is an interesting one. I know you've got some stories about VW, Wayne, because it appears in the odd transition fund. It does, and I think you know the, the case that goes for it is quite interesting. I think if we look at why would people want to invest in VW at this stage, well, they're a very big car company. They're one of the big three. And they are having to spend a lot of money. They've smelt the coffee on the electric car. They were behind the trend considerably. So now we sort of look at this as whether or not this stock is on transition or not yet. If and as they create more and more electric vehicles and spend money, they will shift the dial. They will, they will take, take the electric car forward another stage. They will be the first of the really big old-fashioned OEMs to transform. On the other hand, their past is still a little bit dubious. Um, 
I can go back to 1995 when I remember VW's governance credentials being questioned by Midland Bank in Germany. I mean, people thought that they were attacking the holy grail of German corporate life at the time. But there's always been problems with governance at Volkswagen. And at the moment, for example, we have um, the issue of Dieselgate, where they're still being sued considerably. And of course, they were one of the most complicit organisations in lying to people. So there's a case for and a case against at the moment. And this is where this is where it becomes interesting. Our stance is generally um, I can't I can't be a hypocrite. I used to drive a golf for many years, but at the same time, at the moment, I feel it's just not quite there for investors yet. So we're still sticking to a slight avoid stance on it, but we do understand that there will be a change in the future. This is where it's important the advisor has the chance to sit down with their clients and understand what's important to them as well, because. Certain clients might say, fine, VW is far enough down that transition road and I'm happy to invest in them, but others might say no. So that's why it's important. You've got questionnaires available that we can supply as well that helps the advisor sit there and pinpoint the key areas they want to avoid and then do want to invest in. Craig, I know you started 10 years ago. What did you think about the ethical universe back then? Uh, you were always seen as the weirdo in the corner, the person that done ethical investing when there wasn't many of us around back then. Some people would say that you still are, but I would totally disagree with them, Wayne. Um, yeah, it was strange. I mean, obviously, I focused quite a lot on the on the funds and on the platforms, and the investable universe has grown massively um, since I started looking at it. I mean, there was probably maybe 70, 80 funds out there that you could invest in. Not all of them passed their ethical screen. Now there's got to be into the thousands and possibly into the hundreds that we can invest in. And obviously the biggest change that we've seen in the last 10 years is moving away not only from uh, pure funds on the ethical side that do exclusion, but more onto the impact side as well. So I think that's been the biggest change that I've seen in the last five, six years. I got a question on greenwash because I know it's um, a big thing at the moment. More and more people are coming into the market. Was it a massive thing back then, or is that just a, a new sort of buzzword that's being thrown around? I know we were first coining it around 2006 when we were starting to see some investments where we just felt people were painting bad things green or anything green. So the phrase has been around a long time, and I think the tricks. So have the tricks, to be perfectly honest. Um, the biggest driver of what goes on is data. Data can be abused. Data can be used. Data is fashionable. That hasn't changed. We still have a lot of that today, um, particularly, say, around carbon, because that's probably one of the most easily abused forms of data. But um, I would say that um, greenwash has always been a problem and I think will continue to be one, even into the impact sector. I mean, people use a little bit of imagination sometimes when they look at what's good. But I would say it's going to be a continued problem. What about you, Craig, in terms of greenwashing? Because you've been looking at the funds for a number of years. How, how, how would you sort of comment on that in that space? Yeah, there's some that do it extremely well um, and they wouldn't get to be in our portfolios if, if they didn't, to be fair, given the you know, the efforts we go to to make sure that the screens are adhered to. Um, we're not one of those firms that will just take a label and just accept it. We'll always ask for, you know, the underlying holdings to make sure that they do do exactly what they say on the tin. Um, 
and there are some that uh, that are not doing particularly you know well in it i mean i'm not going to mention any names for fear of litigation but there have been some where the federal people have gone in to to check it and saying that you're not doing it right so uh, i agree with wayne there's still going to be some people out there that are going to you know try and pull the wool over your eyes uh, but for us uh, we're very confident in our screening that um, we will hopefully will never get accused of that it's all about meeting client expectations isn't it at the end of the day and one of the conversations we've been having, having as a team is about ESG as risk versus ESG as doing good. And I know you've been doing a bit on that, Wayne, as well. So why do you think that's so important? Advisors understand that. I think you have to because most rating agencies will be looking at the ESG risk. And that is the opportunity or the chances um, or the risk that you'll be caught out because you are involved in a high-risk area from an ESG perspective versus actually why people was first of all looking at this sector, which were looking for the companies that were the best from an environmental, social and governance perspective. So doing good and i.e. being the best in ESG is different to having a high level of ESG risk. And it is a very fine nuance, but it's very important because there are some companies that get very good ESG ratings, but I don't think many investors would want to see them in their portfolios. Wayne, uh, you, you've been travelling up and down the country. I know you've been in Scotland and Belfast um, along, along with Pete. Um, how did you find that? What's the sort of response you've been getting? I think it's been generally surprising how positive people are. After such a difficult year for the sector um, relative to the main market, I'm one pleased that people listen to all those years we said, when oil has a good year, we'll have a less good year. And everyone said, yes, you told us that, we expected that. But at the same time, I'm still pleased that people are seeing the future. People are seeing that it's going to be renewable. People are seeing beyond the immediate crisis to the way people want to build in the future. And that's why I'm still very excited for the next 20 years. I would add to that, I have no intention of working for another 20 <laughs> years, mind you. Yeah, yeah. Over yeah. to me and Will, I think, on that front. Yeah. Well, it's the end of September. It's been an interesting month, and I know we're going to come back on many of the points. But let's just go through some of the interesting points. There's been a lot of travelling. I think we've seen the country, we've seen the economy, and we've had a chance to even look at a few wind farms on the way around the on our way around the country. But I think perhaps the highlight was winning the award. Um, so, Harry, you were at the ceremony. Did you think it was a good ceremony? It was, yeah. It's one time of the year you can let your hair down for a bit. I know there's a lot going on in the markets. But, yeah, me, me and Will went up. We collected the trophy. There's about 400 or so people from, from the industry there as well. So yeah, getting that award, I think it's it's a big achievement, um, and I think as a team we're very happy and obviously very thankful to our uh, our client base for the votes that we got, and thank you, thankful for their support that we've had over the last few years. So yeah, I definitely echo that, and uh, I think the most important thing uh, about the award is that Will was up on the dance floor on his own, so he seemed to enjoy himself the most. That's vicious rumours you're creating there, Craig. No, show me the facts, and then I'll withdraw, I'll withdraw the. Uh, comment right we're going to sign off with one question i'm going to fire it to both of you craig what one sector are you most excited about at the moment uh i think for me it's energy transition 
Uh, obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on with uh, with hydrogen, particularly green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, all sort of 50 shades of hydrogen, I think uh, one of the uh, investment firms called it as well. Um, and it's, again, about the storage, uh, battery storage, etc. cetera. Um, but there's just so many you know, exciting industries and sectors out there that 10, 15 years ago didn't exist, to be fair. You've got ammonia in there as well. I think Germany took the first delivery of uh, ammonia shipment the other day didn't they so yeah exactly it's easy to carry it's it's in there it's it's liquid you get it from a to b nice and easily what about yourself wayne i think i'll have to go for the ev sector the biggest change in society we're seeing right now on our streets um living in northeast london i see a new ev every day i've been driving one for a few years and absolutely love it and it's not just about the carbon I mean, it's also about the fact that basically you're not killing your neighbours with pollution and they're a lot more fun to drive for those of you who have seen it. But this is a total transformation. 10, 15 years ago, people were taking the nicky out of Tesla and saying it would never happen. It's happening on the streets today. And I think in 20 years time, the old fashioned cars will look very, very strange. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank um, you. Thank you, Harry. Please listen. Uh, please keep checking on your emails for the next podcast to come out. And um, thank you for right. lending your ears.